So I was diagnosed on Christmas Eve and I told myself that that summer I was going to run a half marathon and I wasn't going to let my diagnosis slow me down or or rule my life. And I kind of wanted to show diabetes who's boss. So I went out and ran my first half marathon just a few months after being diagnosed. And then I just haven't really slowed down since. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A show all about type 1 diabetes. I'm back after my spring break, Easter break. I'm not really sure what to call it because I'm not in school anymore, but I'm back. And as promised, with a brand new episode. Today's episode features a very special guest because I've actually never met her before, at least not in the real life sense. It's something that I think those of you who are active or at least present in the type 1 social media space can relate to. Knowing someone for years and even talking to them on a daily basis without ever having actually met them in real life. All because of your shared connection with type 1. Today's guest is that person for me. I met Erica and her Instagram page a little over a year ago. I had just gotten back from my Bike Beyond bike ride, so I was missing being constantly surrounded by type 1 and people that truly got it, you know, got it in air quotes. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say Bike Beyond, first off, how dare you? Secondly, you can go back and listen to episode 9, where I talk all about Bike Beyond and what it means to be constantly surrounded by type 1. But anyways, like I was saying, I was really missing that type 1 connection that I had felt throughout that entire summer. So I did the very 2017 thing to do, and just started going crazy on social media, following all kinds of accounts that had any sort of mentioning of type 1. Eventually, I found Erica's Instagram, and she was the combo of all of my favorite things at the time. She had type 1, she was biking across a very large state, which I had just done multiple times that summer, and she was biking for charity. I mean, biking for charity is literally one of my interests on Facebook. So we got to DMing about bikes and type 1 and have been diabuds ever since. I helped her out once by sending her Dexcom sensors that I couldn't use, and she was really encouraging and supportive when I first started this show basically one of the coolest people I know, and we've never even been in the same room. Now, I know the subject of type 1 social media has come up a lot on the show before with multiple guests, and it's been met with mixed reviews, but I can honestly say that my friendship with Erica definitely falls under the pro column. On this week's episode, Erica and I talk about a very cool leap of faith she recently took, awkward workplace experiences with our type 1, and her type nun friend Jeremy learns all about the simple joys of sugar-free candy. Here's the episode. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Thank you guys so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having uh, having me on the show. So let's start with some introductions. So Erica, why don't you tell us what your story is when you were diagnosed? Sure. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't realize we were starting like right away. I have to like warm up here, Walt. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> we can warm up. Okay. <laughs> My name is Erica. I'm 31 years old. I'm from Boston, Mass. I was diagnosed four years ago on Christmas Eve. Uh, let's see. What else do you want me to say, Walt? So one thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about, very recently you moved from Boston all the way across the country to LA. I did. Yeah, I drove cross country. So type one for everybody listening knows that it's a very huge factor in everything that we do from, you know, eating breakfast to 
walking outside the door. It's always a, something that we think about. And so like big leaps like that are pretty hard for people like us, I think, to take. And, yeah, definitely. Um, and so I wanted to get your take on how you did that and how you prepared yourself and how you did that with your type one. Sure. So I made the decision to find a new job, break my lease, drive cross country and, and start a whole new life in the matter of like 10 days. So it didn't give me really a lot of time to prep when it comes to my diabetes. So I still have to find like an endo um, and go through that process. And I was at Jocelyn back in Boston, which is, you know, is one of like the best for your diabetes care. So I don't think I'm ever really going to find something that close to Jocelyn out here. And I was, I'm willing to compromise just because I think the quality of my life is going to be a lot better out here. I can be active and be outside and I think in turn, it'll be better for my health. So what I really did was I just stocked up on all my supplies as much as I could and gave my doctors at Jocelyn a heads up. And thankfully, my job is still insured me for a month before I started my other job. So I won't have any lapse without health insurance, which is huge, as you know. And so I really lucked out when it comes to that. Definitely. Those, those kind of considerations have to be made. But it's definitely something that can be worked with or worked through. And yeah. I, I thought that was like a really cool thing that you did. I yeah, I didn't, remember... I didn't really want to let diabetes stop me from moving. And it was it was definitely a concern. And it's still obviously top of mind that I don't have an endo out here yet. But I didn't want it to hold me back from doing anything. And I was kind of nervous about even driving cross country and, and getting low while driving because I was driving like seven to 10 hours a day. But thankfully, I never like went low or, or had any like close calls. That was definitely one of my concerns too. It's stuff like that that people like us have to think about, but it's definitely things that you can work through. Little little forethought. I, I actually remember, I think the first time that you said, I'm thinking about moving to LA and that was less than a month ago, I think. And now you're there. So I thought that was, I thought that was. I know, I made it happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So Jeremy, why don't you introduce us to yourself? Hi, I'm Jeremy. I don't have type one diabetes. Yes, you are um, type one for the day. I have zero diabetes. Um, although I do know some, I did know someone. My grandmother had type one, so I am somewhat familiar. But she passed away. Can I just interject here real quick? When he told me his grandmother had type one, I obviously, or when he told me his grandmother had diabetes, I obviously rolled my eyes because everyone says that, and they usually mean type two. So I was actually really surprised that his grandmother had type one. Yeah. I remember she used to like stick herself with the shots back in the day. Lots in the freezer. It was very visceral memories for me. She did not die of high blood pressure. I mean, wait, high blood pressure? Wait. <laughs> high blood sugar? High blood sugar. Wow. See, I'm, I, look at me. I don't wow. know anything about type one. I'm a filmmaker. I also, I'm a screenwriter and sometimes comedian. I'm from Seattle and I've been in LA for seven years. And so, of course, since Erica has recently moved to L.A., you guys recently met. And I kind of wanted to get into how Erica's type one, how did that come up in topic? Was it something that she presented to you or something that you noticed? Or like, what was your first interaction with Erica's type one, Jeremy? She pretty much just led with that. She took off her shirt, showed me her diabetes patch and was like, this is what you're dealing with, man. No, um, <laughs> it was it was more of like a casual kind of drop we, we had a drink and then she brought out the um star trek meter whatever <laughs> it is that is that reads the the blood sugar very vigilant and like on top of it and i was like what's that 
curious self that I am. And then she kind of just laid it all out. I mean, I, I, like I said, I mean, I, I know a good amount about this just from my grandmother. So it wasn't like that big of a, sh I wasn't like, oh, what does that mean? Did I get it? Do I have type one diabetes now? <laughs> because we found out, um, we shared our drink. So I don't know. What do I do? Um, so it was pretty casual and she seems very, I guess I would say confident and sort of like, well, this, I have this and this is what it is. And that's, it's funny that you say confidence specifically, because that's, that's a topic that people with type one ask about a lot is when do you introduce your type one to whatever kind of social situation you're in? And it's come up in a couple episodes. What I've kind of gleaned is that it ultimately comes down to confidence is it's how you present your type one, not so much that the fact that you have it, but that how you feel about it really shows when you tell someone new about it. It can, and you can really set the stage for how people take your type one by presenting it in a way that shows that you're that you're on top of it as opposed to it controlling you. So Erica, is that something that you have been practicing or is that something that you've always done? You, you were, you're more recently diagnosed. Is that something that you've been practicing or is that just something that you've always done ever since you were diagnosed four years ago? I think, honestly, I think that's just something that I've adapted or that's just something that that's just how I, I honestly, that's just how my mindset was upon diagnosis. So I was diagnosed on Christmas Eve and I told myself that that summer I was going to run a half marathon and I wasn't going to let my diagnosis slow me down or, or rule my life. And I kind of wanted to show diabetes who's boss. So I went out and ran my first half marathon just a few months after being diagnosed. And then I just haven't really slowed down since I've I ran a few more half marathons and I've done some triathlons and then most recently just ran my first marathon. So I'm just always continually to trying to like challenge myself in, in not letting diabetes get in my way. But yeah, so again, it's, a, it's about confidence and it's definitely a mindset, I think, more so than type one doing anything to us specifically. But that's really cool to hear that. Okay, so as this the title of the show suggests, it's all about asking about type one. So, Jeremy, what's your first question for Erica and I? I don't know. We'll keep it. Was there a moment when either of you guys were diagnosed that you were just like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna like die"? Did did that ever cross either of your guys' minds that you that this was something you weren't gonna be able to manage and beat? When I was first diagnosed, I kind of had that thought, like. Yes and no. Like, I was just like, oh, well, like, I'm going to die anyways. Diabetes might kill me. A boss might kill me. I don't know. Like, I'm going to die when I'm going to die. But then, like, I did some research and I noticed that, like, type 1 diabetics had a shorter life, like, span. And there are obviously a lot of complications that come with high blood sugars. And so reading that, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to die. Like, that's obviously inevitable, but I'm not at the same time going, I'm going to make sure it's not from diabetes. I want to be from, like, bungee jumping or, like, skydiving or doing something like really extreme rather than having like this disease kill me. And do you think that's because you were 26, like you said, so do you think that's why that that's how you looked at it? I think so. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure if I was diagnosed when a lot of other people are like when they're two months, six years, 12 years old, obviously you're definitely going to have a different mindset. So I'm interested to see what you think. Yeah. So I was 12 when I was diagnosed. I was actually in the middle of a move. My parents and I were moving from Southern Texas to Mexico City. So it definitely wasn't the only thing going on in our lives. But for as a 12 year old, I remember pretty specifically, the doctors were definitely talking to me and like letting me know what was going on. But I 
wasn't really paying attention. I think they were more so talking to my parents and my parents for the most part took care of it for those first few years anyways. I honestly don't remember them and anybody saying like you could die from this or your your life expectancy is shorter because of this. Erica, did anybody put that in your head or did you just look it up and find it? I looked it up and I just, I did my own research just because I think everything was obviously readily available and at my fingertips and I wanted to learn as much about it as possible because when I was first diagnosed and, and they told me I had type one, I kind of just nodded and, and shook my head without ever really knowing what that meant. And I couldn't really fully grasp what type one was. And I was, cause I immediately thought of my grandmother who has type two, which I think is a common misconception. So that's why I wanted to do as much research as possible. And then even when I told my friends and, and some of my family for the first time, they would try to relate and be like, oh yeah, like I know someone that had type one and and uh, yeah, they ended up dying. And, and it was just like, they would say some kind of like morbid things, not even realizing how insensitive they were being. But I'm sure if I was a child and had type one, they'd probably censor themselves a little better. All right. Do you remember if your medical team, how were they explaining it to you? Were, did they hold your hand? Did they give you just the facts and that was it? Or what was that like? So specifically? I, was, I was first diagnosed at Mass General and they were awful. Honestly, they gave me a book and they're just like, okay, you have type one, read this book. And uh, then you'll go to the Mass General Diabetes Center. And I still like couldn't fully grasp or, or process what everything happened. And it wasn't until days later that I went back into the hospital and I actually had to meet with like specialists and everything. Cause I went back to, into the hospital. My blood sugar was at 700 just after being diagnosed, just because I had no idea what was going on. Cause they didn't like really teach me anything about like carb counting or, or ratios or anything really. So I thought I could like just still eat whatever I wanted. And I gave myself like a few units thinking that was going to like cover everything. And of course, it never did. So yeah, I ended up back in the hospital. Only until then did they have specialists to actually come and meet with me. And then from there, I went to Jocelyn just because I realized Mass General probably wasn't going to give me the standard of care that I wanted. Yeah, it's, it's something that I hear about a lot, especially with people diagnosed when they're adults. That kind of standard of care really isn't there the way I probably had when I was 12. Because I think even, so I was diagnosed in the year 2000. So I think back then it was still thought of as a children's condition, like only yeah. kids got it. But now we know that it's it, people get diagnosed with this at almost any age. I've met a person that was diagnosed uh, at three months. I also met someone that was diagnosed at the age of 50. Like there's really no standard age range anymore. At least that's what we're noticing, which goes to what you were saying. Like there's definitely a difference and it can be very scary, especially when the only answers you're getting are from Google and random you know, WebMD yeah. searches, which doesn't really filter <laughs> any of the information. It just gives it to you as it is and, you know, lets you figure it out. Definitely. I even remember my doctor at Mass General. She's like, oh, so what do you do for exercise? And I was like, oh, I ran nine miles this morning before coming to my appointment. And she blatantly just like just straight up laughed at me because she was like, I can't even get my patients to walk because all of her patients were type two diabetics. I think I was only her her only type one diabetic patient that she saw out of the whole practice there. So that's was my deciding factor that I needed to go to Jocelyn. Yeah. So and so to answer your question, Jeremy, like I never had that thought, mostly because the people around me, my parents especially, were constantly trying to remind me that this was I, I wasn't any different. Like it's just a, just an addition to who I was. Like things didn't have to change too much. So that thought never came up to me. Probably not until I was later, like old, maybe my mid twenties during grad school, 
we refer to it as type one burnout or diabetic burnout, where you kind of just get tired of having to deal with it. It was it was never something that overtook me. I don't think it was just short stints realizing that this was this was never going away and I'd have to do this for the rest of my life. But yeah, definitely not a diagnosis, at least not when I was 12. Okay. I guess that actually is like a pretty good transition into my next question about what's the worst possible thing someone with type 1 diabetes can consume, like whether it's eating or drinking. And are there things that you no longer eat or drink because it's too high of a risk? So that's also another common like misconception. So like type 1 diabetics can basically eat anything they want as long as they take enough insulin for it. I mean, some things are harder to eat than others because they'll either like spike your blood sugar or you'll get like a delayed spike. And like with pizza, like I love pizza, but that's a hard thing for me to manage just because you have like the carbs and the crust and then like the fat and the cheese and the oil and like fat also affects your blood sugar so like you will spike much later on and like you have to extend your bolus over a longer period of time and you kind of have to know how to adjust your insulin for eating certain foods and that all comes with trial and error i think so there's not really like anything that you can't eat per se yeah i would agree pizza is a a very popular topic on the show because it's that that one example of a very complicated food when you think about it, pizza is made up of a lot of different food groups and they all interact with insulin differently and they are absorbed differently. And that's the kind of things that we have to think about. So I wouldn't say that there's anything that I try to avoid, but I do know that there's certain things that given my blood sugar at that moment, will it'll do good things and not so good things. So like things that spike sugar very quickly, like uh, candy does that a lot, simple sugars. candy. Exactly. Like I had a a guest on, she said that she ate more candy after her type 1 diagnosis than she did before just because low blood sugars, that's a really great way to get your sugar back up to where it needs to be is candy because it's a simple sugar. Your body absorbs it really quickly. But things like uh, breads and uh, very carby things like pizza, for example. What about mac and cheese? So it's, it's similar to pizza, I would say, but just there's a lot more fat and carbs. Erica, how do you how do you handle mac and cheese? I honestly don't remember the last time I ate mac and cheese. Wow. Poor thing. I know. There you go. No. Um, well, I, I try to not eat things that are going to complicate my, like, my care. Like, I stick to, like, very, like, unless I'm, like, I think everything, like, in moderation, like, in balance. I know how to, I know how to, like, bolus for french fries, though. How about you, Walt? You know how to bolus for french fries? What is, what, she, she says bolus. I have no idea what that means. Can you educate me? so bolus is a medical term it's not so much a type 1 term specifically but it's just bolus is just a short dose of any kind of medication for a immediate effect whether whatever you need to happen immediately that's what you take in this case whenever we're talking about dosing boluses we we're referring to insulin because that's our number one medication that's what we use to keep our sugar in range and so when you're talking about bolusing for food Erica is talking about taking a small dose of insulin at that moment. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also one one other rule that I forgot to mention for Jeremy. Something that type ones do a lot is we have a very specific vocabulary that's very specific to type one. It's a weird mix of medical terms and food terms and mythological creature terms that doesn't make any sense to people that don't live with this like we do. So in the case that we Eric and I start talking about that or dropping kind of words that you just don't understand, you can call a type one timeout. So basically that means the conversation stops 
And then we have to explain whatever it is you're questioning until you understand it. Okay. That doesn't okay. have to be a, that didn't have to be an official type one timeout. That's just a, <laughs> that was a, just... a nice intro to the type one timeout. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, so that's what a bolus is, and that's what Erica and I mean when I say bolus. It's basically the shot that we take, and we have to bolus when we eat. And we also bolus like to correct a high blood sugar. Yeah, so again, that goes with the intended immediate effect. So you're out of range for whatever reason, like you you had a piece of pizza, and you're getting that you know after pizza spike. You take a dosage of insulin, a bolus, to bring that back down. Okay, that makes sense. I, I was, you were saying candy is like a big thing. I have another question that's related to candy, but I'm not going to ask it yet because I remember that my grandmother used to absolutely destroy sugar-free candies all the time. Absolutely. I mean, it was, I've never, the woman had a piece of sugar-free hard candy everywhere she went. Is, is that something that helps you? I mean, how does, how does that interact with your I mean, it, blood sugar? I mean, it doesn't help us. Like, it, it's just, it's like a free food. So, like, we can eat candy. We can eat sugar-free candy without, like, one, like, kind of feeling guilty. And then, two, um, without having, like, to give ourselves insulin. So, we can still, like, indulge in candy. And if it's sugar-free, then, like, we typically don't have to give yourself anything. Like, I actually found, like, I'm pumped about this. The grocery store in my building has all-natural, like, sugar-free chocolate it's made from the stevia plant and it doesn't spike my blood sugar at all like i can eat a whole thing of chocolate and my blood sugar does nothing and that's very that's insane for me because my carb ratio is one to six so like i don't really have any free food so like any little thing that i eat i have to give myself insulin for and like with this i don't have to and for it to be chocolate that's it's insane and it's actually really really good so i'm all about it yeah, definitely. I think honestly, I think the sugar-free hard candy thing is more of a old person thing than a type no, one thing. No, it's not. I eat sugar-free Werther's every day, <laughs> but I am old. So. <laughs> she just got up and had a walker that she just used to get to the other side of the room. Yeah. You're definitely the oldest thirty-one-year-old that I know. <laughs> Hold on, she took out her dentures. <laughs> But yeah, going back to what Erica was saying, it, basically it's a neutral food. Sugar-free anything really doesn't have an effect. It doesn't lower or bring up our sugars just because there's no carbs in it. Sugar and carbs are kind of like an interchangeable word. Car a carbohydrate is a type of sugar, and that's what we look out for. And then like Erica said, her carb to insulin ratio is one to six. Yeah. Yeah. So one unit of insulin covers six grams of carbs of whatever she's eating. And yeah, so sugar-free, again, I don't know. I, I didn't know your grandma. So I think I'm thinking it's more of an old person thing. But again, or the fact that the stereotype that old people always have hard candy, uh, sugar-free hard candy for a type 1 is a lot easier to eat than regular hard candy. So it's probably just her her being a grandma and having type 1. That's a combination. Although I've, I'm not really into sugar-free candy. But again, it's one of those things that you can definitely eat and not have to worry about. That makes sense. I actually, we're, we're talking about candy. So I'm just going to go ahead with my next question, which is, you, you said you were diagnosed when you were 12. Well, right. How hard was Halloween for you? <laughs> so, so like I said before, I was moving to Mexico City. So Halloween in the sense that we have it here in the States doesn't exist down there. But again, when I came back to the States, I would definitely do it. I would definitely have my like stash candy. I would just eat it and, you know, account for it kind of thing. It's not something that really sticks out in my head. I was never really like a huge candy eater, 
So I don't think it was that big of a deal, but it's not something that really sticks out in my mind. But that, that is something that gets referenced a lot, I think. I don't know, Erica, what do you think? You were, you were 26, so I don't know. Were you trick-or-treating around that time? <laughs> I was I was not, but uh, I don't know. Really, yeah, I, don't, I never really had like a huge sweet tooth when it came to like candy, but if if it does strike me, I always usually go for sugar-free, so. Is it the same for Valentine's Day? Is like chocolate. I mean, she just said that she found sugar-free chocolate. But what about you, Walt? Have you had to? I do love a good Hershey kiss. And whenever they show up at the office, I will have them. And I'll notice it. Like I can feel, like you can feel when your sugar gets, goes high. But again, I can just account for it. But again, it sneaks up on you because you, you eat one, like, you know, and then you eat another one 10 minutes later and so on and so forth. And that, that sugar stacks and builds up. So eventually you feel it. Again, it's just like, like Erica said, we, we can eat anything we want. We just have to be mindful about it, I think is probably the biggest thing. And then also like Halloween and Valentine's Day are are great because the day after all that candy is like 75% off. So type ones are known to like take advantage of those sales so that they have all these low snacks for later. Oh yeah, it's perfect to stock up. CVS, 75, 80% off Valentine's Day candy. You'll you'll be set till summer. Oh, for sure. So Erica, a question for you, or now that you're, (laughs) so now that you're meeting all these new people, how long have you been in LA, like officially? I've been in LA for like three weeks now. Okay. Yeah. So, and you're, you're meeting a lot of people. How are those interactions going? Is type one like on your mind when you're in this like new place, like you're trying to build a new life? It's definitely been on my mind a lot, especially in the corporate environment that I'm in. Um, I was kind of nervous to tell my coworkers that I have type one. And then I had to run into a meeting and I left my CGM and my pump on my desk. And of course I had to change my pump and my CGM was going off. And then I came back to my desk and I had like messages from nearby coworkers, someone keeps vibrating. You need to silence it. Like, and obviously it was like my diabetes like devices and I just left them on my desk, not really thinking about it. And of course they were a disturbance to everyone else on my floor. So that was obviously really embarrassing and no one knew that I had type one. And then even recently we had a pizza party and I didn't really feel like dealing with my blood sugar all day. So I didn't have any pizza and someone asked me why. And so that I just broke it that I, I have type one and the conversation got kind of annoying because then obviously everyone's trying to identify with that. And, and one person's like, oh yeah, I do paleo because I'm pre, like I'm pre-diabetic. And I'm like, oh, so you're pre-type two. And, and then I had to explain everyone and give everyone kind of like a health lesson on, on type one versus type two and the differences. And then someone was like, oh, I know a girl that had type one and she ended up dying from it. And so I was like, I'm just starting a new job. I just moved cross country, moved somewhere else. And all these strangers are trying to relate to type one. And and I know they meant well by it, but at the same time, I walked away from that whole interaction, very annoyed. So it, it has been a little challenging being in a new environment and dealing with new people just professionally and personally, like my CGMs on my arm and that was never really a problem in Boston because I was always either wearing like long sleeves or a jacket or something. But here, like I wore a tank top to the dog park and my CGM is out and like I have to kind of get used to that all over again, even though like I don't mind and like I always have my devices out and about. But 
I think I'm just like a little bit more exposed now, like literally and figuratively. Yeah, it's really interesting. I didn't really think about the the whole weather and clothing thing. Like it's definitely something that you'd notice, but only probably until you got there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I live in Pittsburgh. And so it's kind of similar. Like it's very, it's very cold here, like nine months of this of the year. So it's very easy to keep those things tucked away and not very visible. But during the summer months, yeah, I do notice that I get kind of like those kind of second glances and kind of things. But yeah, so at work, like I've, I've noticed that a couple of times, like I'll sometimes my I have the Omnipod, so it'll beep every now and again. Yeah, same. Yeah, I'm on the I'm so, a potter too. So one time I was like, I was kind of, it was kind of on me because like I just kept on ignoring it without like, you know, turning off the alarm. But sometimes they get really persistent and yes. uh, in the very far, like, because it's a very loud beep and it's meant to be heard from very far away. And so I heard someone in the background so like, what is that? And then I kind of got really embarrassed and like, you know, went to the bathroom and kind of figured it out. But then again, I so when I change my pods at, at work, I, I would usually go into the uh, the ADA bathroom, the, the disability bathroom, just because it's easier to do. Sometimes I do it at my desk, but sometimes I'll go into the bathroom and I would just like not thinking about it, throw my syringes away. And then eventually we got, uh, an email. I think everybody in the building got it, or at least on my floor from building management saying like, we found syringes in the bathrooms and we need to let whoever's doing that know that they can't because it's a OSHA violation kind of thing. Like, Oh my goodness. And like an effort to keep, um, you know, the janitorial staff safe. We were asking whoever's doing that to not do that. Um, no, no. But at the same time, they should supply like safety disposal boxes. And that's kind of off on them at the same time. So I, actually, you know. I thought that too. And I was about to like type right to my HRs, like, can they do that? Like, shouldn't they be providing? But then I looked it up. I looked up the OSHA statute and the only um, work environments that have to give that option or have to have like sharps disposal boxes uh, available are where sharps are used as part of your daily work. So like, you know, labs and stuff in the medical facilities and stuff like that so you know an office building in the middle of downtown oh honestly i'm i'm really surprised because i know that like we're supposed to like dispose of them safely and like there are certain ways we have to dispose of like our diabetes supplies and and syringes and everything and i thought that that would be something that they would just supply for you yeah i looked i looked into it and apparently they don't have to they definitely can it's not like anybody's stopping them but if they if push came to shove, I doubt that they would just because, and it probably just me, honestly, on my floor, there's only two offices. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot of hassle. And they should do whatever they can to make you feel welcome, Walt. Right, exactly. No, but then I thought about it. It's like, I could definitely, like, I don't do it very often at work. It's not something that really bothers yeah. And honestly, like the syringes that I use don't even touch me. So it's not really a biohazard. So it's not like anybody's in any danger, but I do. Yeah. But it did make me feel like I felt slightly attacked. But then again, like in the same email, there was, so there was, they found syringes in the bathroom that I use, but they also found it in uh, a women's bathroom on the same floor. And I was like, oh, Oh, interesting. So then the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, there's another one. But no, but but the Omnipod server, you're using the Omnipod syringes to fill your pump. So they're completely different than the syringes that someone would use when they're not on a pump. Yeah. So it's definitely a distinction. I think maybe I'll kind of bring that up and see if, but I don't know, would you bring it up to somebody or do you think it's worth that or? So like at my old job in Boston, everyone knew I had type one. I was very open with it. Everyone was super supportive. And it was even funny, like my, one of my girlfriends, one of my coworkers, she 
was like, Erica, I missed you today. I didn't hear any like beeping or buzzes. And like, I missed it just because like we were in open office and everyone got used to like my devices going off. So I would always dispose of my syringes and like CGM supplies, like my pods, like my pump supplies, like in the bathroom and no one ever really said anything because they knew it was me. So if I were in your shoes, I probably would have like just replied to that mass email, just been like, oh, like I'm a diabetic. I'll be more aware of it. But at the same time, I feel like if they knew it was something like diabetes and health related, maybe they would excuse it a little bit or not excuse it or just maybe be more tolerable of the syringes just because they know that you're doing it because you don't have a choice. Like, I feel like you having to hold on to your syringes until you get home from work is like a little unfair, honestly. Yeah, I felt that way too. And honestly, I think I felt almost exactly the way you do right now until I saw that OSHA distinction. Because after that, after I saw that, it's like, oh no, it really changed my mind about it. I will say to the point of syringes, that's something that has that changed a bunch over time with usage of like, like I said, my grandmother used to exclusively only take shots that she stored in the freezer. And now it seems like Erica has a few different, um, they're not patches, but they're devices that she has. And then there are the comedian that you told me to look up. He said he has one that he brings out of Prix's finger. So there's obviously a bunch of different ways to do this. Art is taking, do you, do you still take shots? Is that what you guys were just I talking mean, about? Well, so yes and no, we were talking about syringes because we use them to fill our pump, but when your technology fails you, because I mean, there's so many medical advances with diabetes and there's new devices to help us manage it coming out every day. But when those fail you, and sometimes they do, I keep like backup syringes in my purse. So that is something that I have like just in case uh, they're needed, but I, I never use them. But I think it's also just kind of like, like a backup plan. So yeah, Jeremy, like you were suggesting, the the way people get insulin now has changed a lot, probably since the when your grandma was taking shots. So there's pumps, like Erica was saying, we have, I wear the same pump that Erica does, and ours is tubeless, sticks onto us, it's, it's good for three days, or it has enough insulin for three days, and then we take it off and put a new one on. Some people use one that isn't disposable, that has a tube, they have to refill every three days. So Ed Gamble is the comedian I t uh, told you. To yeah. look up. He has a, a bit about his type one in his act, comedian from the UK. And uh, it, he actually literally brings out his insulin pen. That's what it was. So it's similar to a syringe, but it, you can reuse it. You only The only thing that comes off or is disposable is the actual needle that goes into you. So nowadays, there's a lot more options in terms of how you can get your insulin because we all need it. It's just a matter of how do we get it in, into our bodies. And so the options that we have today are so, so much more than there used to be even 10 years ago. And it just goes to show the kinds of lifestyles that people lead. Because I, I do know some people that still use those old syringes that your grandma used to use. And they, they say that they're, they're, they're analog and they just, let, they just prefer it that way. It fits into their life better than maybe a pump would. A lot of it has to do with uh, being able to afford it too, even if you have insurance. Some insurances don't cover certain pump technologies and so on. So there's a lot of factors that go into what people use. You actually just bring up a really good point, Walt, because I obviously just switched companies and switched health insurance. And I have no idea if my new insurance is going to cover my pump and CGM supplies like it did in my old job. And that's definitely like a concern of mine. So we'll have to see how that unfolds. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've had, had to think about when I switch jobs. I've gotten very lucky because it definitely wasn't like 
a very like persistent thought in my mind going into it. I just kind of found a job and, you know, crossed my fingers, hoping that they would cover my, the pumps, the pump that I use, the Omnipod. And luckily they have every time, but that's not always the case. Did you start on the Omnipod very soon after you were diagnosed? Uh, yeah. So I started Dexcom, uh, the G4, which I'm still on. Like, I know I need to upgrade badly. So I started on the G4, like a few months after my diagnosis. And I think about a year and a half in, I started on the Omnipod and I was so against it at first, just because I didn't want to wear too many gadgets at once. But now that I'm on the pod, I don't think I'll ever go back to taking shots or being on like a pen, just because I, I just love like the freedom of a pump, even though that's like, counterintuitive because you have something that's on you but with the wireless pod like I feel like I do have a lot more freedom and I'm and I'm able to push my body because I can like manipulate my insulin differently than I would be able to if I was taking shots yeah it's in real time as opposed to having to wait for it to take effect because uh because pens you have to have that long acting insulin in the background every day so Adjusting that is a little harder than adjusting a basal rate on your. Oh, definitely, yeah. And then, and you're you're a swimmer too, so the Omnipod, I think. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I've been on the Omnipods in, in since 2009, and that was like a big, big like marketing aspect of it. Is like, oh, swimmers, like it, you can use this in the pool all you want. You can take showers with it, whereas other pumps, you have to take it off. And even that like 30, 45 minute window uh, of not having that constant basal rate can really mess up your sugars for the day. People obviously adapt and get used to it, but it's a factor. I like everything in a type one's life, it, everything affects everything. So yeah, I'm totally with you on the Omnipod. Like I, it's the first pump that I ever had. I've never switched. I've never done anything else. No. Yeah. I don't think I could ever go to tubing. I want an Omnipod. I don't even know what it is, <laughs> but it sounds great. It's the pump that, that we wear. Yeah. Where, where was Erica wearing her pod when she showed it to you? Well, I went in for a hug to be like, hey, how are you? And I like, felt something on her arm. Oh, okay. And that was one thing. And then the other one is, I guess, on her stomach, which I have not seen. Yeah, so my, my desk comes on my arm and my pod's on my stomach. Gotcha. Where do you keep yours, well? It can change, so it's not in the same place every day. I actually have it on my stomach, too. It's on the right side. Do you feel it's like a major hindrance to you? I mean... The pod? No. So the pod, like, yeah. I've had a pod on since 2009. So I don't knock it on anything. I think I'm very aware of it. So sometimes getting like a, a coat on can be tough because it can get snagged. But I usually feel it before anything rips off. So for me, like we have to change them every three days. So sometimes right. I forget where they are. So when I'm changing or like putting a coat on and off, like our if I'm wearing high-waisted jeans or something, like I always forget where they are and sometimes they get in the way. But like you said, like you usually catch it before you, you rip the whole thing off. Yeah, it's, I guess, a, an extra sense that I have. I'm aware of it. Do you ever take the, like, let's say your pod expires while you still have like a ton of insulin in it. Do you ever take your old insulin out of the pod and put it into a new one? I do. I remember doing that the very first time. It was around maybe a few months after I'd started it. And uh, like I, I, the pod malfunctioned for whatever reason, and there was still like 50 units plus like on it. It's oh, like wow. stupid. I'm not going to throw this away. Insulin's very expensive. I'm going to use it again. So I just sucked it out, put it back into the bottle. Yeah, I feel like that's what everyone does. Well, I don't know. It's definitely something that I brought up in like like a chat room at one point or like a Facebook group, and they said it's like, oh no, never do that. 
And was, what? Yeah. Well, some people are very strict with the rules. Also, some people don't use as much insulin as I do. I, I realize that I fill it up like all the, like to the 200 unit max, whereas do other you people- really? I do. Do you, do you not? ratio? One to 10. Oh. Golly. Well, that's not even that. That's better than what mine is. Uh, what's your basal rate then? I guess what? around one. Well, okay. So it's not so. So lately, I've like, I guess I do still use. The- Can I do a type type one timeout? I was just asking if basil is the amount of past basil you put on your pasta. Apparently, that's not correct. It's very, it's very, it's very similar to it. So it's not. It's spelled B A S A L. Ah, I'm such a basshole. <laughs> I remember hearing that in the hospital when I was 12 and I was like, wow, these people are very Italian. <laughs> but yeah, basil, in the, it's another medical term. So basil is the minimum amount of anything that you need to retain biological function. So in our case, basil is insulin. So there's a minimum amount of insulin that we have to have going through our system at all times to keep us alive, basically. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Cool. All right, type one time in. So, so like my basal rate, it, like it all depends on your body and like your composition and everything. So like, people, all other diabetics have different basal and and bolus rates and right. everything. So when Walt said he has to fill his pump to like the two hundred units max, I was curious about how much like insulin he actually uses over those three days. So either like his carb ratio is super high. Or, I mean, low, or his basal rate super high. So. Yeah, relative or to Eric. Or do you just yeah. fill it up for shits and giggles? Like, I don't know. No, I definitely don't do that. I remember I was, like, toying with it because lately, the past few months, I'll still have, like, maybe 30 or 40 units on on in the pump bef- uh, as it goes, as it expires. So I started toying around with the a 170, like, filling it to the 170 or 175. I forget which number it is. It might have more to do with my diet as opposed to just kind of oh, how much. Definitely. It has to do like, hugely yeah. with diet. So my basal rate, I think it's a, it's around one unit per hour. Okay. So what's yours? 0.55 to 0.65. Yeah. So that's probably where the difference is coming from. I do notice that I feel like women are the ones that I notice aren't filling their pumps or their pods all the way. Like I have a friend, uh, Sylvie. She's had her type one for oh, almost 30 years and oh, wow. she never fills the the pod all the way. It's like, oh, it was like 150 or 175 around there. Why would you fill it all the way and waste the insulin? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm definitely using it. It's not like I'm not just having fun with it. There are times where I there's still insulin in the pod. And I think it, it has more to do with just like I happen to be lower carb that month. Like I yeah. ate, but I definitely notice it. And that, again, it's just like one of those things. Type one is a very biospecific condition. Eric is type one is very different from mine and the way we manage it. It's the same condition, like the same things are going on in our bodies, but it's very different. Insulin affects her differently than it does me um, and so on. So it's very, very unique to the person. Why? I mean, this may seem like a, this seems like a safe space, Walt. So I'm going to ask this question. Why has it been so difficult to find a cure? Erica, do you have a thought on that? I do, but I just wanted to hear yours. Um, I think I'm going to go a little like negative here. And I think just pharmaceutical companies want to make money off of us. Because it's funny, when I was first diagnosed, well, not that it was like long ago, but they were just like, oh, there's going to be a cure next year. And then like 
the year after that, they're like, oh, there's going to be a cure in like four years. And it's just like, okay, like, where's this going? And and from people that I've talked to, it seems like they're saying that there's going to be a cure every five years. So I think we're just making a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies, honestly, especially with the skyrocketing prices of insulin now. And they're just letting people die every day. You're right. That was negative. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. So, no, I think you're you're right. And I agree with a lot of what you said. So I so there's actually kind of like a conspiracy theory out there, like, you know, type ones and and, and with their Facebook groups saying like the government has a cure. They're just not giving it to us or like pharmaceutical companies have the cure. They're just like saving it because they make so much money off of us. But then I this is just like what I think for type one diabetes isn't very common. Eric and I are in that community. So a lot of what we see on like our social media, there's a lot of type one. So it seems like there's a lot more of us than there might actually be. So, That's so accurate. And then on top of that, there aren't really cures for anything. If you think about it, there's not a cure for the common cold. Medical science has gotten very far, but it's also very limited into what it can do. But like Erica was saying, there are those people that say, oh, five to 10 years. That's all it takes. I remember hearing that when I was 12 in the year 2000, like oh, just another five, 10 years, uh, it'll be cured. We're that close. And I think it's people... Half of it is people that are just hopeful that they just want a cure so bad that they're willing to believe the people that are saying that. And the other people are, are probably part of research initiatives. And it's a lot easier to raise money for the hope of a cure as opposed to the fact that there aren't cures for pretty much anything. Side yeah. note, the stocks for like Norvodisc and for Insulate are like skyrocketing right now. Like those people are making so much fucking money. I'm going to throw that out there, Walt, because I've been like having a ton of visibility with like like publicly traded companies and stuff and like they're on like top 10 now it's insane it goes back to no, I, conspiracy theory right no and i agree with you that part of it is i think it's the perfect storm in the u.s that they're allowed to do it because in other countries it's a lot more affordable and they're they're still making money in those countries like they're selling it so they're definitely making a profit it's just that in our country they're able to get away with it you know what's, um, it also varies by state because my prescriptions in mass are double my prescriptions here in California, even though I'm still covered under the same insurance. Interesting. Isn't it? That's crazy. Yeah. Insulin pricing is a whole different beast, but in terms of cure, cures are hard to come by there. I had a, a nurse guest on and she said, there's a cure for cancer. It's bleach. Like you can kill cancer cells with bleach, but if you give someone bleach, it'll kill them too. Yeah. Um, Especially, especially in humans too, because like our biology is different across the board. Again, Erica, Erica's type one is different from mine because she was diagnosed later. So it might even be a different kind of diabetes. There's people thinking that type one is a, more of a spectrum disorder and people fall on it differently depending on their like insulin needs and when they were diagnosed. So we might even have just completely different things going on. But yeah, the cure, I'm, I personally am not holding my breath for it just because medical science is is has a tough time with cures yeah and tony stark is an avenger and not real so you can't really depend right. on him to come up yeah. with cure. yeah i'm just even, even no i i don't mean to bring so much levity like when we first met i was making a lot of jokes about not like oh diabetes ha 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 but like i you know some people if there's something that you don't want to say a word that, of contention that you know, we all have those words. I was sort of being like, I was whispering diabetes. I was like, I don't want to bring anything up just in case it offends your diabetes. 
you know, I'm not sure you heard the whisper, but like, is, are your friends, I mean, I don't know if this is, does anyone really give a shit? Does anyone like inquire beyond the people that, for example, when either of you meet someone for the first time, regard, like, besides the interaction that I had with, with Erica, like, is it, is it something that just like, you feel you always have to tell someone right off the bat? Or is it something that you feel does you don't have to tell every person like oh this is just Janice from work I don't or I have diabetes. Balls. <laughs> yeah. So there are definitely people that I remember when I was first diagnosed. My parents bought all these books, especially specifically one. It was like type one diabetes for dummies. I kind of thumbed through it, and the one nugget of wisdom I took from it was. There are three groups of people in the world, the people that you have to tell. So basically people in your family, your immediate family, people that you like significant others, people that you can tell. It's kind of a 50-50 if you, if you want to tell them or not, it's really up to you. They don't need to know, but it's good that they do like coworkers, but like people that you're spending a lot of time around and then people that have no business of knowing and don't need to know like the guy the the person at the cash register at the grocery store like that's a person that does not need to know about your type one they don't care you're not going to see him again and to me it makes sense there's people that have to know about it just because they're in your life like a significant other they'll be around you if something goes wrong and type one i've noticed at least in the past few years that it can definitely affect my mood and like my emotions I specifically get grumpy or like angry when I'm when my sugar is really high. So if I'm, you know, living with someone, it might be good for them to know about that. Like if you're hanging around a person and they care about you, they're going to want to know why you're ticked off at them for no apparent reason for like breathing too loud. So there's definitely people that can know um, people that should know and people that really don't need to know kind of thing. Okay. I don't know, Erica, do you have a rule like that? Because you're in a new place now, so I feel like it'd be more apparent for you. I mean, like I told my current roommate, I've made a lot of friends just at the dog park from having my dog and everything. And I haven't told any of them, even though like my, like I said, my CGM's on my arm. And they haven't asked me, but I obviously know that they've seen it. So we just like haven't had that discussion yet, but I'm sure it's coming, you know? Yeah, I, I haven't really told many people here. I remember, so I, I had it for a very long time and I because of the nature of my dad's job, I would move around a lot. So I would, I would intentionally not tell people, even people that I went to school with, or like people that I considered my friends, because I think I was diagnosed at an age where it's a very formative uh, time. And I didn't want to be defined by my type one. So the best way I could think of to do that was to not tell anybody about it. And it ended up really hurting me in the end, because I started building it up to be this really big dramatic thing. And when I started telling people in college, like I told very few people then, and their reactions to it were very, they didn't match what I thought they would be. I thought they would be shocked or concerned. And it was very, very underwhelming response. But at the same time, I think that's because they just don't understand it too. Yeah. But I also think it's because a lot of times, or type ones like me, I guess specifically, just build these things up. to, yeah. And it, it can be, it's a lot bigger of a deal to you than it is to anybody else, I think. So having the attitude like you, if people ask about it, you'll tell them it's not a big deal if they don't know about it. But if they end up being a more permanent part of your life, it's it's good to know because I feel like holding it back and like feeling like you have to hide it is a lot more burdensome than it needs to be. Makes sense. I wonder if like there's I mean, obviously you have this podcast and there's other things I'm sure. I guess I wonder like because I would say if I asked 10 people that I knew just as my friends that none of them had diabetes of any kind. I'd be like, 
so what do you know about diabetes? And they would be like, oh, the diabetes. Make some sort of joke about it. And then be like, yeah, I guess, you, you know, can't eat sugar. And uh, there's some sort of device involved. Like, how, how, how does it become more, like, how, how do you inform people beyond what's already happening? Do you have any ideas, Well, That's where my idea for this show came from. So most type one podcasts specifically, they're, they're meant for type ones. They, they feature well-known type ones, but they don't really talk to anybody outside of the community, which I right. think is our, is our biggest weakness and that we, we tend to be very insulated. We kind of gripe and complain about type one amongst ourselves. Insulated, was that a pun? Was that a pun to the insulin? No, no, actually, I, I didn't even realize I said that. <laughs> but continue, yeah. continue. <laughs> but so if we're just talking to us amongst ourselves about these kinds of problems, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't give type one the exposure that it probably could benefit from. So like all those runs that you were talking about, a lot of the people participating them in them either have type one or like they're the parent of a type one or a spouse of a type one. It'd be really helpful if like people that aren't maybe directly affected by type one are doing those and like raising money and bringing awareness and I think the only way we can really do that is by including people in the conversation. So like the type one timeout, like we, Eric and I got kind of gotten to a heated debate about our insulin ratios and stuff like that, which is weird, a weird thing to talk about if you don't know what type one is or what it involves. But those are the kinds of conversations that happen in type one groups. And it's very difficult for people that don't have a direct connection to it to penetrate that. And it really just, it only really hurts us because there's a lot more of you type nuns and there are of us type ones. And uh, so that goes to kind of like how much money we get, we end up raising for research efforts. So the more people that know about it, the more people that realize that they have a person with type one in their life, the more kind of access to it and the more um, awareness that we bring and possibly even like, like you said, maybe, maybe even a cure, like the guy that discovered insulin or how we use insulin today just kind of randomly came across it in a in like a study paper that he did. He didn't really have any uh, connection to type one. Uh, I'm talking about Banting. He was a doctor in Ontario, but he just kind of happened to, uh, across this paper or the study on insulin and what it did for the body. And then he, he was inspired to do something about it. And uh, that's how we that's how everybody with type one today stays alive. So it's those those connections that we can make with the people outside of our community that can really help honest. us. I'm gonna be honest with you, man. To be honest with you, man. You're doing something about it. And that's a that's the biggest step in general, is that like you actually are making an effort to to do something different than other people are doing. So hats off to you, man. Thank you, sir. It's all it's also something for I think newly type, uh, diagnosed type ones, because we were saying people are diagnosed a lot later in life now and it gives them a chance to normalize it and get a sense of what how talking about it, what it's like, and then giving them that extra bit of confidence or just kind of giving them the tools that they need to be able to talk about it with people in their lives. Anything that you wanted to bring up, Eric, or any questions that you were dying to ask Jeremy? Oh, Jeremy, what did you think when I told you that I was a diabetic? Like, what was your initial thought? Like, first thing that came to your mind, just like one word, what was it? Very good question. One word. Hmm. I guess the first word is sugar that comes to mind. Because you hear diabetes, at least I do, and I'm like, okay, sugar. And then the next thing is, I'm like, is that why she's so sweet? <laughs> I'm, just <kidding. laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, I guess I was just more like curious about like 
I guess the word manageable would come to mind, like how manageable it is. And that's some of the stuff we've already kind of talked about, like how easy it is mm-hmm. to keep things under control. And when you meet someone with something, whether it's this or, or something else, like. Well, it's funny because I know that you kept calling me like a cyborg and I like told you that I wore devices. I, I meant that in a, a term of endearment. <laughs> it's a term that we use or people use. It is. is it? Yeah. yeah. Wow. You can get a shirt with that on it. No way. Yeah. No. So that's why I was like, yeah, I am a cyborg. Like I was pumped that you called me that, but I didn't know. Like, it, I just thought it was funny that your mind went there. Yeah. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a big You're James. A nerd. I'm a James Cameron nerd. So I like, you know terminator and all those things so i was just like how do how do i become a term like a cyborg like i i don't know that that's the way you solve it but like that's i was kind of like it's kind of i mean a lot of the things i think about like it's a patch or it's some it's plugged it's like it's it's a very interesting system that i think like children or kids would find quite maybe like cool if they didn't I don't, maybe that's the wrong term but it's kind of i mean it's amazing the level of i told erica this like you guys are all operating at such a high level of like your the mental flow state of someone who's type one diabetes like you have to be operating on such a high mental flow state to be able to keep track of everything and know specifically like you said pizza or something else like specifically how much insulin you need to use or how how you have to handle each given situation like i how do you how do you guys deal with when you have to like you're at a concert and you have to dance a bunch like do you yeah actually that's a great question because you have to honestly plan for all of that stuff so like yeah like if i know i'm gonna be like moving around or something and like before i go out like i'll have like a little snack or um gatorade or if like i'm going to a concert and i know i'm gonna be like dancing and moving maybe i'll get like a cranberry vodka instead of like a vodka soda like you know you can or maybe like i'll lower my basal rate by 30 percent for the next like hour or two like it's just it all it's all circumstantial and it kind of you every day is a science experiment and just how your body reacts to certain situations and i feel like that's something you know over time and um maybe you can speak to that a little bit just because you've been diagnosed obviously a lot longer than i have yeah, it's a, it's something that you just kind of learn to think about about automatically. I, I definitely I wouldn't say that I think about it the same that I do today as I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I'm going on 19 years this June. So the way you manage it can definitely evolve and change and you 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 get better at it. You get better at figuring out pizza and figuring out dancing at concerts. I'd probably, you know, come in with some candy in my pockets or something like that or get a soda at the bar or whatever you just kind of learn to adapt i think humans are very good at adapting and uh type ones just have more opportunities to do that in daily life i see that are, are you a cyclist well i do bike how do you handle the tour de wall if you don't mind <laughs> me asking tour de wall. i don't think that's a real race but when no it um... is are you kidding me the tour de wall coming this fall no, but just in general, when you bike or when you go out, I mean, I imagine that that's something, I mean, I know myself, I don't even have, I'm a type, what do you call me? A type, none. type none. I'm sorry. As a type none, I constant, I need Gatorade or like yeah, a cliff bar yeah. or something, something, something sugary to, to get me through like a bike ride or something like that or a hike or something. 
Yeah. So again, it's just a lot of forethought. So biking for me, I, I do long distance biking. He so, bikes across the country. Wow. You forest gump the country on a bike? On a bike. Yeah. Well done, Wall. Thank you. But Gatorade is one of my Gatorade gets your sugar up really fast, really quickly. Um, taking breaks, uh, knowing your body, um, using technology. So I've actually biked across the country three times. And one of the times I had what Erica uses now, a CGM. So it gives you your current blood sugar in real time. So like it can actually predict when you'll go low and alert you to it so that you can. Oh. Okay. So I use that. That completely changed my bike game. So I was seeing lows before they happened. So I could just pop a, you know, a shock block or a cliff bar as I was wow. biking. So, I didn't, so yeah, there's definitely technology can help. And then just being aware of your body and listening to it and not trying to be stubborn and pushing harder than you have to. So, yeah. Like I didn't, I brought up Tony Stark, but it like essentially sounds like type one people with type one diabetes are all iron men and women it's, that have it, to like deal I was with gonna, yeah i was gonna agree with you on that because tony stark the way he could probably not cure type one but give us like a much better like quality of life because he would have like you know nanobots that make insulin right. at exactly the right time so i think technology is where uh we're gonna find the closest thing to a cure as opposed to like an actual cure yeah. technology is getting a lot of like the bigger kind of tech companies out in Silicon Valley are getting into like the type one game and bringing like different ideas and more technical, uh, sophisticated ways of management. So I think that's where we're heading, at least in this next few decades. It'll get a lot easier to manage as opposed to just being rid of it permanently. We'll just be able to think about it less. Would you live with nanobots in your body wall? That's the question. I would love to do that. Erica? She says yes with her eyes, I guess. I don't <laughs> no, know. sure. I guess, sure. I mean, if it makes eating pizza easier, why oh, not? That's true. That and French true. fries. Oh, yeah. The French fries. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. This is an extremely informative thing that you've got here. Well, I got to say, I know a lot more. <laughs> than when you started. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, I know that's like not saying much. But the bar was very low. No, I mean <laughs> the kidding. bar. The bar is where it's at, probably for the majority. I mean, oh, like right. I said, I had a, a grandmother things. who who had it, and so like my bar was at like a three out of ten. I no, suppose. Probably, yeah, probably I'm, better than most. And but this is still, but like I really didn't realize how much she was going through. Like as a kid, looking at her go through something like that, you're like, oh okay, she's like taking a shot. I guess. Oh yeah. It's like oh no big deal. People take shots. Yeah, and this was back in, the, back in the days where you had to boil your syringes. You didn't have, like, the disposable yeah. one. Yeah. It's a good thing that there's people like you and other people that are doing, like, auctions and, like I said, rides. I guess I put that in the wrong. But just to, to raise awareness for the rest of the, the world that this is something that isn't going to go away. And No, I, and I honestly think that's imperative because not a lot of the population knows about that. So, like, like what Walt's doing is fantastic. And I think every type one can like do their part to kind of like raise awareness to the disease and and inform people and i feel like I think we all do our part in some way yeah we definitely can and like like you were saying like you're you wear your devices out in the open and that's you may not like explain it to every person that sees it but it's something that if people see it they'll at least know about it maybe even one day ask maybe not you but if they see somebody else with it and see that's how those things start it's not gonna everybody isn't gonna be instantly know everything about type one overnight but it's definitely a slow progression yeah which is good i mean slowly but surely 
learning every, helps. Yeah, every every little bit helps. I mean, I guess my question is, what can someone like me do to like make like say I'm talking to someone and they're like, "What'd you do last night?" I'm like, well, you know, I went on this type one diabetes podcast. <laughs> What's the best thing to say to someone? Because they're going to be like, what is that? Like, you what, can why? Just, you can inform them everything you know now and just spread your knowledge of it. You'd be like, they got a lot of basil. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just genuine, genuinely, I mean, like, are there like talking points or things or is there one thing that both of you wish that someone knew that you could just like, tell them before they interacted with you at least for me i think it's i wish people knew that it's a lot harder than the public perception of diabetes yes, yes. i was gonna say something along those lines like don't compare me to type two like i think it's just everyone that's just so uninformed of it and like that's what frustrates me the most you know just like this is a job that's day in day out 24 7 we don't get a break from this and this is like how it is for the rest of our lives and it's just there's nothing that we could have done to prevent this from happening there's no cure and they don't know what causes it and i think just kind of raising general awareness will hopefully ease people's perceptions of it and and will increase my tolerance of other people's ignorance right yeah i think that you kind of hit it on the head so people i think nowadays people have these preconceived notions of diabetes so i think the first thing i would tell them is forget all of that assume you know nothing about my type one and then go yeah, from there exactly yeah okay that's fair that's what i'll tell them they'll be like what do you know i'll be like you know nothing about time type one i don't know if you're a game of, i don't know if you're a game of thrones fan but i'll just say you know nothing about that john snow exactly that's where i think that's the person that wrote that was type one so that's what they're thinking damn <laughs> there that's perfect i wouldn't be surprised and then you can tell them to listen to the show Absolutely. Yeah. I will 100%. Shameless self-promotion. Hey, it's not shameless, man. That was that was very organic, what you just did right there. Not ashamed at all. Just like the organic chocolate that is sugar-free. That, that <laughs> yeah, is. try it. You need to try it. They should sponsor your show. Uh, you can tell them that. I would love to have chocolate sponsors. And uh, yeah, Thanks for doing this, guys. Of course. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Jeremy. And that's the episode. What'd you think? Do any of you type 1s have a diet buddy out there who you've only been able to interact with over social media? Are you friends just because of your type 1? Or has it evolved into something more than just the common struggle that you share? Type nuns, can you remember the first time you were introduced to your friend's type 1? Could you tell how they felt about it even before they told you how it made them feel? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can send them my way by visiting askabouttype1.com and going to the contact page or visiting me on Instagram at askabouttype, the number one, and sending me a DM, or mentioning it in the comments. Tune in next week when Ask Me About My Type 1 gets taken over by the Blahar siblings. Friend of the show and returning Type 1 guest Maggie comes on with her sister Lucy, and we hear all about Type 1 from the sibling perspective. And it's going to be a true family takeover because, fast fact, Maggie's brother Sam is actually the one who produced the intro and outro music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. All right, everyone, I'm going to head out. All this talk about sugar-free candy has got me craving some sugar-free Werther's Originals. Maybe Erica's right, and they're not just for old people. Bye. <laughs>